Father in heaven, we thank you for what you're doing here this weekend at Southwest Youth Conference, and we thank you for this opportunity that we have to be here to learn more about you, and I pray that we will make decisions this weekend that will further and deepen our walk with you. And I pray that as we go through this presentation this afternoon, that the information in here will give us encouragement, that if we've been struggling with something, that we can gain encouragement, that you can help us to trust in you, to develop new habits. So bless me now as we spend some time on this topic, I pray in Jesus' name, amen. So yeah, so this presentation is going to be on um, the science of the brain, which as a neurologist I certainly find interesting. Although I'll readily admit I rarely talk about the brain, except to my patients in clinic, but I don't usually do presentations on this. Um, I actually like talking about the Bible, but, um, but this is a, a very important topic, so um, I'm glad that we can spend some time talking about the brain. And um, so we'll, let's just go ahead and, and get started here. Uh, so the human brain, which is the body organ that houses the mind, is the most important structure in the human body. And, my, and that's my opinion, but I, I think it's, it's obviously important because if you lose your mind, nothing else really matters. And if you don't have a, an operational, functional brain, you know, all of a sudden the things that you've worked so hard on, um, technical abilities you may have, um, everything just kind of goes with it. So, um, and of course there's a difference between the brain and the mind. The brain is simply the physical organ, the structure, the tissue, um, and the mind is who you are as a person. And um, who you really are as a person, um, you know, what, what constitutes who you are as a person? You know, we all can put on a good front for who we are as a person, but the real you, that which constitutes who you are as a real person, happens right here in your mind. And that's the thoughts and the feelings that you have when nobody can necessarily tell what you're thinking. So when you're just kind of sitting around and nobody's with you, you're driving around town, and your mind is going through its process of thoughts, and the feelings that are generated based on the thoughts that you have, that's who you really are. It's not the good front that you put on for the job interview. Hopefully that's the real you, but you can put on a good front for the job interview, and then the real you shows up. So who you are is right here, especially in the frontal lobe. It's in the mind. Um, and the thoughts and the feelings that you have on an ongoing basis determines who you are as a person. So that's why I say that this is the most important structure in the human body. I mean, I don't want to have any injury or damage to any part of my body, but I'll take a broken foot over a concussion. That's just the way it is. Um, so... Continuing on, so the mind controls the rest of the body, and the choices that we make in the mind determine our human destiny. Now, uh, there's such a thing that we call the lower passions and the higher passions, and the, the higher 
level of thinking, the critical thinking happens in the brain, and then you have the rest of the body, the lower passions, the appetite. And you know, sometimes we we give more credit to our stomach than we really should. And other areas of appetite. It's like, well, I was just so hungry, I mean I couldn't help it. No, your mind controls your, your stomach. Your mind controls the rest of your body. It's only by the grace of God, but but you can make choices that can lead to good outcomes in the rest of your body. So your stomach is actually reliant on your brain, your mind, to keep it from being overloaded. Even though it's telling you that it's hungry at 10 o'clock at night or whatever, your, your brain can, can do better than your stomach every time if you let your brain do the thinking for you. So the mind controls the rest of the body. The choices that are made in the mind determine our human destiny. And I can tell you certainly as a neurologist that um, a lot, I wouldn't say all, I mean, for example, people who have carpal tunnel syndrome and they have numbness in their hands, that's not because they've made poor choices in their mind. That comes from the type of job that sometimes they're required to do because of the, the need they have to support their family and they do repetitive work and then they get numbness in their hands. And so the, I, I'm not talking about that kind of neurologic difficulty, but a lot of the neurologic illnesses that I see originate from poor choices in the mind. And in fact, I am often called upon to do evaluations for patients who end up not having neurologic issues, but they think they're neurologic. So I have some, I'll have people routinely come into my clinic and um, I just saw someone recently who was in very good shape and ran marathons, but due to anxiety issues, started um, developing sensations that were electrical shock-like sensations in her, in her head after she would run for about a mile. And she was convinced she had some kind of a tumor or other issue in her brain and she saw several neurologists and then somehow she came to see me and um, I did what's called the hyperventilation test. You can try this at home if you want. It's not that hard to do. You just hyperventilate. And if you get the same symptoms within three minutes of hyperventilating, chances are it's an anxiety-induced condition. And sure enough, within 15 seconds, she got that electrical shock-like sensation in her head. Now, it doesn't take, it's not too hard to figure out. If you're jogging, eventually you're going to be hyperventilating because you're jogging, right? Um, and so, um, but because of her anxiety issue, it created some other issues. But a lot of what I see in my clinic, people who have anxiety issues, depression, people who've had even other health issues, people who've had strokes, people who have other similar things. They've made poor choices in the mind that lead to poor health conditions, um, such as hypertension, diabetes, high cholesterol, and then you develop neurologic symptoms and diseases because of that. So the mind controls the rest of the body, and the choices that we make in the mind, you know, I'm starting to get older. When I lived here in Loma Linda, I thought I was young, and well, I didn't think I was invincible, but I did think I was young. And um, boy, I'm pushing 40 now, that's kind of discouraging. <laughs> I, I came here when I was 23 years old, so that's, you know. Um, 
but when you're young, you think that it doesn't really matter so much what you're doing. But um, the older you get, the more you realize that the choices you're making are affecting your life in significant ways. So let's keep going here. Philippians, and by the way, the title of the message is The Science of the Mind of Christ. So Philippians 2.5 calls us to have the mind of Christ. Now let's just talk about the mind of Christ a little bit. I mean, and Pastor Bachelor read that verse at the end of his sermon um, today. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, and humbled himself, became obedient unto the death of the cross. So, yeah, the sermon today was really a good segue to um, what we're talking about this afternoon. Oh, by the, by the way, I should tell you this. Elder Bachelor came up to me in the hall after um, the sermon, and he's like, hey, you know how I said I was going to change my talk at the last minute? I was going to talk about what you're talking this afternoon. <laughs> so that's interesting um, how the Lord kind of works that way. So I had this topic covered, so he was impressed to change it to a different thing. Um, the mind of Christ. If we could all have the mind of Christ, wow, what kind of a difference would that make in the decisions we make on a daily basis? You know, making himself of no reputation, and in the original that means he emptied himself, he emptied himself especially of his divinity, but he emptied himself of all human selfishness and was completely unselfish and obedient, humble, um, was willing to go to the cross. You know, you talk about being made of no reputation and, you know, talking about pride. How many issues could be resolved if we were content with no reputation. Because what this passage of Scripture is teaching us, and again, this is, we're going to be talking about how we can have the mind of Christ and the science behind the mind of Christ, but what this passage of Scripture is showing us is that reputation doesn't matter, but character does. Now, if you have good character, you're going to have a good reputation, generally speaking. Although Jesus was hated. He, he didn't have a good reputation by the Pharisees. But Jesus wasn't concerned about his reputation. He was concerned about character. So he emptied himself, and he humbled himself, and he was obedient, even to the death of the cross. And so many issues that we have as human beings is because we're concerned about our reputation. And because we're concerned about our reputation, and that's because we have a pride problem, that leads us to make decisions that lead to bad outcomes in a variety of ways. It could be lifestyle choices. We're concerned about our reputation, so we dress a certain way, or we eat a certain way. We hang out with certain groups of people. I mean, you know, I was talking to um, somebody yesterday um, who was asking for advice. What would you give advice to a first-year medical student? And I, this is sort of related, and I was like, well, you know, um, it was interesting to me that when I went through medical school, um, the people who were at the bottom of the class tended to hang out together, and 
when it came time for exams, they would complain about how the exams were just so hard and so unreasonable, and this is so unfair. And a lot of them were failing the exams, and then they would just talk to each other, and, and then they would make themselves feel better about themselves. And so in their little group, their reputation was okay among themselves. But again, the Bible says comparing yourselves among yourselves, you're not wise. They should have been hanging out with people at the top of the class who set the bar high and said, what more can I learn, not how little can I get by with the past. So that's, that's always a piece of advice I give to people who are starting school. And that doesn't, not just medical school, any type of study. Ellen White says success in any line demands a definite aim. And if you're like, my aim is to barely clear the bar, boy, I don't want to come see you as a doctor. I mean, or dentist, or mechanic. I want to go to the be best car mechanic in town, not someone who barely got through. So, we're concerned about reputation so much. We're not willing to humble ourselves, to be obedient. And so we're talking about the science of the mind of Christ. And so now we're going to get into some of the pathways. And I'm going to, there's a lot of spiritual application here. But we're going to discuss neuroanatomical pathways of habit formation. So when you look at this slide, and we'll get into this, but this is a neuron in the brain. And this neuron talks to other neurons. And we'll get into that. But it's amazing how habits can be formed in the brain. And we will see that it is possible through God's power to form habit pathways that will help us to have the mind of Christ. And again, this mind of Christ is a mind that is not interested in reputation, but character and humility and in following the will of God. Um, so here's a few scriptural verses to add to this. As a man thinks in his heart, so is he. You know, the way you think on a daily basis, I've already said this, but the way you think on a daily basis, that is who you are. And again, we can all put on a good front here at Southwest Youth Conference. Praise the Lord, we love Jesus. So good to be here. Jesus is coming soon. We can all say the right things and do the right thing, you know, in a group. But what are you like when nobody's around. Are you in your heart, are you like, boy, I hope Jesus is coming sooner. Boy, I hope not yet. I want to get married and have kids. Now, let me tell you something. I am very happily married, and I have two wonderful kids, and I wouldn't trade them for the world. But nobody in this life can replace who Jesus is to me. And if you'd rather have other people in this earth first, then Jesus isn't most important to you. So, just think about that. But as you think in your heart, so you are. Do you really want Jesus to come? What do you think about people who cross you? You know, we could, you know sometimes we can be even good and put a smile on our face and, and make it look like somebody didn't offend us. But in our heart, we're like, I'm going to get them next time. <laughs> I'll be subtle about it, but when my opportunity to c comes to get back at them, they're going to be sorry that they crossed the line with me. As a man thinks in his heart, so is he. 
That's not how Jesus would think. Jesus humbled himself. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And so, you know, I've given this presentation in a, a couple of different settings. I gave this at the um, Northern Caribbean University, Adventist University in Jamaica a couple of years ago. Um, and it was a bit of a different emphasis. And I've given this also at Andrews University for a health um, seminar there. Um, this is definitely going to have more of a spiritual component for a Sabbath afternoon presentation. And one of the things that I really want to drive home is that we all need to allow God to help us to develop better habit patterns in our thinking, especially as it relates to Christianity in a general sense. How do we relate to people, especially the ones that we don't get along with, or even people that we're close to that can rub us the wrong way. And a lot of us have developed bad habit patterns that has led to bitterness and frustration, and you get into these negative cycles in your family where you just start pushing buttons, and those habit pathways start firing, and they're ready to go, and you, ha you already know what the preset buttons are to push. You have your preset responses, and you go into your battle modes, and before you know it, it's all there. And, you've had, and some of you who've been married for a while have years of experience of this. And what Scripture is teaching is that we can overcome these types um, of pathways. Um, our pattern of thinking can be positive or negative. We've, been all, all, we've all been around those who are cheerful and delightful to be around because of a tendency to have an optimistic look. Now I give my wife credit for this slide. She put these pictures together. <laughs> I want to pick that picture, but that's fine, whatever. But I mean, you know, I have an aunt who ever since I was a kid growing up, she was always so positive, always so nice to be around. We always look forward to being with her. And I, well, I better be careful what I say because this is being recorded. Um, <laughs> I have someone that I guess is a relative. Yeah, she's a relative. Uh, <laughs> I better stop right there. I'm just not going to say anything else. You, we can all identify people. Um, if I could have gotten away without saying she, I would have been okay. Um, we all have people in our families or associates where your human tendency, when you find out they're coming over, is like, oh, no. Because they're not the happy person. They're this type of person. And they're going to pour out their life story of how awful life is. Oh, you just don't know. <laughs> now, mind you, I'm not trying to put anybody down if you're in this situation in life right now. But if you're in this situation in life right now, you need to change. It's not a good place to be. It's like, oh, I'm not sleeping at night. Oh, my cat doesn't even like me anymore. <laughs> And then people will be polite enough to sometimes put up with it for a while, but if you're like that, you might notice that people have excuses for not coming over and not being around as much. Um, you don't want to be this kind of person. And it's a habit. You develop a habit where you just start going into this, woe is me. It could be like, oh, my 
school is so hard. This is impossible. I can't believe anybody could ever do this. And Oh, my family is this. My mom is this. My dad is this. My sister this. My brother that. My boyfriend this. My girlfriend that. And you're developing habits that are going to be hard to break if you keep hanging on to it. Now, you're going to be able to overcome it by the grace of God, but why develop a habit pathway that will be there the rest of your life? Especially for those of you who are young. Learn to develop positive habits. And, and look, I'm a human being. I have to fight these tendencies. So I'm speaking, uh, I, now I'm not like the chronic, but you know, I can certainly have my moments of negativity. So we've been around those who are very pessimistic, who can turn into potential, any potential positive opportunity into a negative perspective. And we all know who we'd rather be around. And so the Bible says the way we think determines who we are. Um, so what hope is there of thinking in the right direction? You know, you look at Romans, for example, Romans chapter 3, verses 10 and 11, it says, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none that understands, there is none that seeks after God. Our natural tendency as human beings, the way our mind is wired because of the fall, because of sin, our natural tendency is to not understand and to not seek after God and to develop habit pathways that are negative. So now, not every human being is born wired to be you know, extremely, extremely negative. And there's actually, unfortunately, going to, going to be some fairly positive thinking sinners that don't make it into heaven because they didn't give their life to Christ. But our natural tendency is to develop negative habit patterns. That's just the reality of living in a sinful world. There's none that understands. There's none that seeks after God. Now, this is part of the gospel in the book of Romans that this is why we need God. This is why we need the gospel. So Paul develops this idea that this is the way we come into the world, but then he shows as we go through Romans that we don't have to stay that way. Um, so we're continuing on. It's not our natural tendency to understand God in a way that would lead us to follow after him or think his thoughts and have the mind of Christ. So when Scripture says, let this mind be in you, which is also in Christ Jesus, that's not a natural tendency for us. Our natural tendency is to not have the mind of Christ. It's to not understand. It's not to seek after God. In fact, if you read the list of things that happens in Romans 3, it starts in the mind. There's none that understands. There's none that seeks after God. And then you read, why don't we go ahead and read some of those verses just to, to see what... Um, Paul is saying in Romans chapter 3, um, after verses 10 and 11, here's what happens when your mind is wired in the wrong way. So there's none that understands, there's none that seeks after God. Verse 12, they are all gone out of the way, they are together become unprofitable, there is none that doeth good, no, not one. So wrong thinking leads to wrong action, no one does good. And then, verse 13, their throat is an open sepulcher or a grave. Well, that's pretty bad. And you know what? I have had to really seek God's grace to stop burying people in my mouth, in my throat, with my tongue. Because 
it's very easy to, to look at people who are doing dumb things and then, and then to share that concern with others in a supposedly sanctified way. And the reality is it's not. It's actually unchristlike to do that. And I've had to learn that the hard way. In fact, about a year ago, I was um, at, a, at an event, and, I, and here, uh, I had preached that Sabbath, and this was at a Saturday night meeting. I had preached that Sabbath morning about having revival and having the Spirit of God in our hearts, and I went to a, a, a meeting that night where we saw some friends from another church, and somehow they brought up the name of someone that I knew from somewhere else out of state, and the, the Spirit pricked my heart and said, don't say anything, Norman. And what did I do? I said something. And I shouldn't have said it. I said things about this person that were true, but they were unkind. And so it was kind of getting into the winter time in Tennessee. Boy, I miss the warm weather here, but anyway. Um, but I don't miss the smog. So anyway, but it was getting winter time, and so I would, in the evening time, I would do, I, I have a wood stove, and so I was putting wood in the stove, and the Holy Spirit just started pricking my conscience. Norman, why did you say that? And I realized that with my tongue, I had buried this person into the sepulcher, the grave of my throat, to these other people that are very nice people at another church that I know very well. So when I spoke at their church, I go to their church every so often to preach, um, the first thing I did when I got to church that Sabbath, I came up to them and I said, please forgive me for what I said about that person. And they said, well, we accept your apology. We hadn't dwelt upon it. But, you know, it just, we need to learn to stop burying people with our tongue. Hey, did you hear what so-and-so did? Boy, they're really, really, you know. And then it just turns into a gossip session. And that's what Paul is saying here. There's none that understands. There's none that seeks after God. Nobody's doing good. No, not one. And our, when we're not following after God, our throat is an open sepulcher. With our tongues, we've used deceit. The poison of asps is under our lips. Our mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery in our ways. The way of peace have they not known. That's what happens when you're disconnected from God. And then it concludes by saying, there is no fear of God before their eyes. And then it says, all the world may become guilty before God. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. So this is the natural tendency of the human mind. It's to not seek after God. It's not to follow God. And it's to put people in the grave with our tongues and to... We may not be literally killing them, but if we have hatred in our hearts, it's as good as murder. And our mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. We're as good as the children of Israel of old, murmuring and complaining, murmuring and complaining, murmuring and complaining. And so we have all these bad habits that we've developed. And I don't know about you, but I, I want the grace of God to change those bad habits in my life. Amen? Amazingly, and I love this, in the same book, Romans chapter 12, 
verses 1 and 2, where you see that there's none that understands, there's none that seeks after God. Yet when we come to Romans 12, 1 and 2, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service, and be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind that ye may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Now, we're going to get into the science of a transformed mind, but I've showed you from the same book of Scripture that our mind naturally is to go the wrong way, and yet in the same book, we have been given the promise that we can be transformed by the renewing of our mind, that our mind doesn't have to stay bad forever. You don't have to continue to put people in the grave with your tongue. That's a habit you can break. You don't have to keep murmuring and complaining. Your mouth doesn't have to stay full of cursing and bitterness. It doesn't have to stay that way. Now, if you want to end up outside of the kingdom, don't change. But Scripture says we can be transformed by the renewing of our mind, and it's connected to the theme of this weekend. Paul says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice. That's connected to Galatians 2.20. I am crucified with Christ. That's the living sacrifice. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. The life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. So as we present our bodies a living sacrifice, as we are crucified with Christ, the old man, that old Norman, who has a mouth full of cursing and bitterness. And, you know, as Pastor Bachelor was saying, you know, he was saying, you know, if I were to tell you the way some of my things, you would think different. Same thing with anybody who gets up front. If you knew some of my struggles and some of my issues and some of the things that I come to the Lord on a daily basis asking for grace to make sure that old habits don't pop up, you know, you, you would understand that all of us have humanity to fight. But that old man needs to die every day. And when Christ comes in, that is when the mind of Christ comes in. We, we become a living sacrifice. Now Christ lives in us, and now his mind can be in us. But you're not going to have the mind of Christ if you're not surrendered. It's like, oh yeah, I want to have the mind of Christ. Sign me up. Sure, okay, I'll, t I'll put an emphasis on character over reputation and humility over pride, and I'll be a, a nice, kind person to be around. And, but if you don't surrender to Jesus, if you don't see Christ and his righteousness on the cross, you're not going to have the mind of Christ. So we want the mind of Christ. And this is really all connected to having the righteousness of Christ. When we have the righteousness of Christ, we're going to think the way Christ thinks. And um, I have some very exciting, powerful quotes at the end of this presentation. Here's another verse of Scripture. Um, we just have, I guess, two more verses of Scripture before we get into the science. 2 Corinthians 10.5, casting down imaginations or reasonings, and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God and bringing into captivity what? Every thought to the obedience of Christ. Is that not a promise or what? 2 Corinthians 10.5 says that we can bring into captivity every thought 
to the obedience of Christ. That's a promise of Scripture. You don't have to stay stuck in a cycle of negative thinking. Scripture says you can bring every thought into captivity. Yeah, every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. Your negative thought patterns do not have to be your life of slavery for the rest of your life. And let's be honest, if you're bound in a negative cycle of bad thoughts, bad thinking, bad habits, bad choices, maybe you're overeating, maybe you're watching things you shouldn't be watching, whatever it is, all of that can be brought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. And then, you may think this is impossible, but the promise of Scripture, I can do all things through Christ, which strengthens me. So the Bible makes a clear case that through the power of God, our minds and thoughts can be brought into harmony with the mind of Christ. And I want that. I want that. I want to be the loving and lovable Christian that Ellen White talks about. I don't want to be a negative, cynical Norman. So now we're going to examine neuroanatomical and neurobiological evidence for how this takes place. Now, Paul didn't know about the neuroanatomy and neurons and axons and dendrites and neurotransmitters, acetylcholine, and adenosine, and GABA, and all that kind of stuff. He didn't know about that. If he did, he didn't write it down. <laughs> all he knew was what God told him, and that is that you can have a transformed mind, and that every thought can be brought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. That even when nobody knows what you're thinking, your thoughts are in harmony with Christ. So you're, you know, some of us, we can put on such a good front and we're thinking negative thoughts, but we know how to filter so the words that come out are politically correct. But yet, God is promising that even the thoughts can be right, not just the words. So let's look at this. How are habits formed in the brain? So we're going to talk about the science behind this. How are habits formed in the brain? So words and actions that are repeated over and over again form permanent neural pathways in the brain. So it's like walking on a certain pathway through a field. You keep walking over and over it and over it. Eventually it becomes a well-worn path and it becomes easier to go because you've worn it down by walking on it and it's, it's the easiest pathway to take. Why walk through the weeds when you can walk through a well-worn pathway? And that's what ends up happening in the brain. We develop well-developed pathways so that it almost becomes a reflex to act a certain, react a certain way, to say certain things, to have a certain disposition based on various circumstances that can arise. And the older you get, the more you realize that. That's why when you're younger, you really want to make good decisions. Okay, so um, I'm going to quote some scientists here. Now, what I'm going to show you first, and I'll, I'll come up here and point this out. So this is a neuron. 
in the brain. This is the cell body and nucleus. And from this neuron extends an axon. And these are the synaptic junctions with the myelin sheath that surrounds the axon, which is the nerve. And you'll notice these finger-like projections off of the axon. Those are called dendrites. Now, there are billions and billions of these neurons in the brain. Neurons are nerve cells. So you have regular cells outside of the body. You have neurons or nerve cells in the brain. There's billions of these. Now, when nerve cells talk to each other, a signal goes from this nerve cell down the axon, and it comes to the end of the axon, and on another nerve cell, you have the dendrites, and the axon will then pass that signal along to a dendrite then, that then shares it with this neuron. And you can form an infinite number of connections in the brain just doing that. Does that make sense? So the axon from the nerve cell sends a signal to another nerve cell, and the dendrites on the receiving cell then receive it, and then it may pass it down through its axon, and the cycle continues. So for example, when my motor cortex, which is in the posterior aspect of the, um, the frontal lobe, if the left posterior aspect of the frontal lobe tells my right hand to move, there's a signal that fires where the nerve cells start firing, and they fire, and they send that signal down eventually to my arm, and then my arm moves in response to what the brain said. And it happens very fast. And that's a pathway that's formed. So it's amazing how the brain works. But we're, we're going to be focusing more on emotions and character and that kind of thing as we go here. But today we know that messages are processed in the brain and sent to different parts of the body through neurons or nerve cells. This is Dr. Eldon Chalmers. He's written a book, Healing the Broken Brain. And he continues, each nerve cell is made up of a center called the nucleus, the surrounding fluid called the cytoplasm, and a boundary called the membrane. Now that's pretty basic. Those of you who've gone through school, that's pretty straightforward. Now, let's keep going here. Extending from this membrane, many little fibers called dendrites receive messages, and one long sending fiber called the axon transmits messages to neighboring cells. So you only have one axon that's transmitting, but one nerve cell can be receiving many different messages at the same time. So the way God created the circuitry in the brain is really amazing. Um, so one nerve cell sends one message, but it can be receiving many messages or signals at the same time. Now, there are known to be about 100 billion neurons in the brain with 10 to 20 in the cortex or the gray matter. Oh, what did I do there? All right. So between the sending fiber of one cell and, and the receiving fiber of another cell, there's a tiny space called a synapse. Now, let me point this out. Okay. So here is the synapse, or the synaptic junction. Now, this synapse is actually right down here. Does that make sense? So a signal comes all the way down the nerve, and it's going to go to the next nerve. And so this is the end of the axon right here. And here you have the receiving dendrite of another nerve cell. But there's actually a little gap there. It's called the synaptic junction or the synapse. 
So you're going to have neurotransmitters released from the end of the axon and it will be received by receptors on the receiving nerve cell. Now, just as an aside, as a neurologist, I'll tell you this, and this isn't actually directly relevant to the brain. This is actually in the peripheral nervous system. But how many of you have heard of myasthenia gravis? Any of you heard of myasthenia gravis? Most of you have. Myasthenia gravis, what happens, and this is outside of the brain. It's actually between nerve and muscle further down. But the, you still have a synaptic junction between a nerve and a muscle where the nerve is going to talk to the muscle and there's a synaptic junction. In myasthenia gravis, the immune system releases antibodies that bind to receptors on the muscle. So when the nerve sends a signal, it gets blocked. So only some of it gets through, and you develop fatigue and weakness. Um, that's what's happening in myasthenia gravis. So it's not a problem with the nerve. It's not a problem with the muscle. It's a problem with the signal getting through. So the brain talks to itself and sends signals through its nerve cells. And then when you get out of the brain, out of the spine, from the nerves to the muscles, you, can, you still have the signals that pass through. But in the brain, you have the axon talking to another neuron, and you have the synapse, and that's how signals are, are released. The neurotransmitters, primarily you're going to have acetylcholine, adenosine, um, GABA, um, and a few others that transmit these signals. And depending on the type of neurotransmitter, you're either going to carry through with an action or stop an action based on the decision you make in the brain. So there are between 1,000 to 10,000 synapses for a typical neuron, which means that there could be 60 to 240 trillion total synapses in the brain. So this one, this one nerve cell could, be, could have between 1 to 10,000 synapses or, or dendrites where it can receive signals from other nerve cells. So you, you've created a huge network in the brain. Lots of signals can be transmitted. So you really can develop new habits. It's just that once you start developing one type of habit, that's the way you tend to stay. But you could develop new pathways. You just have old pathways that you develop. So let's keep going. Now there was a neuroscientist, Dr. John Eccles, and he researched how nerve pathways function when thoughts are initiated. And what he did was he placed a recording electrode over the motor cortex of the brain that controls the initiation of finger movement. So you think about moving your fingers, and he's going to stimulate that part of the brain. And what he found is that even by thinking about moving the finger, that area of the brain cortex began firing two-tenths of a second before the finger even moved. Now, some of us have better finger movements in here than others. I wished I had the finger movements of Lucy, who's a violinist. So those pathways are just, they become almost automatic. You don't even have to think about doing arpeggios because they're there. Those pathways have been developed. If I try to do an arpeggio, it'd be awful, sound terrible. But a good musician, they've developed that pathway so that the cortex and the brain knows how to get the finger to move in a certain way. And then it just becomes almost automatic. And um, so, but the interesting thing is that before you, uh, I mean, just by thinking about moving, before you make the decision to move the finger, just by thinking about moving it, the brain starts to fire. So that tells us how the brain works. Now, let's keep going. Nerve signals are transmitted from one neuron to another 
in the brain, creating either emotional or physical responses depending on the part of the brain that's stimulated. And frequently, emotional responses lead to phys physical actions. Isn't that true? So if part of the brain is stimulated that makes you angry, a lot of times you'll have a physical response. You know, might, you know, slap your hand together, show a grimacing of the face, whatever the case may be. Um, and these start to turn into habit patterns. And again, a lot of these cycles negative cycles, especially in marriages and families and relationships, are based on these bad habits that develop. And now, mind you, I'm not a marriage psychologist, so just take this for a grain of salt. But men and women's brains are wired a bit differently. And if people tell you otherwise, they don't know what they're talking about, OK? Um, and the way a man's brain is wired, especially emotionally, is that men respond negatively when they feel a lack of respect. Now, that doesn't make it right, but this may help you just a little bit. If you're trying to develop new habits in your family or whatever, just think about this. So if you're a man and you get angry when your wife says something, just think about it and say, okay, you felt lack of respect there, but was she really disrespecting you, or is that just how you feel about what she said? So that, that, that's one thing you need to do. Now, what happens, and these are these cycles that start developing, the man will react, the husband will react in a way that makes the woman feel like he doesn't love her at that moment. Now, in the man's mind, no, I, I still love my wife but she feels unloved. Now, if you're the woman, take a step back and say, does he really not love me, or is that just how I feel in the moment? That, that would help a little bit there as well. But then if you can talk about it and say, okay, wait a minute. Did, you, did I say something that made you, if you're the woman and your husband reacts, you can say, did I say something that made you, made you feel disrespected? And if you're the husband, you can say, did I say something or do something that make, made you feel unloved? And a lot of these cycles, you, you get into this really bad cycle where, so you feel disrespected. So, so like if I'm the husband, I feel disrespected. So I make her feel unloved, which causes her to be more disrespectful to me, which by the way, this doesn't, happen in my home. I'm just saying this is, it, if it does, it's not very often. But this is a natural tendency that can happen. So that then um, you get into the cycle where you made me feel disrespected, I make you feel unloved, then you make me feel even more disrespected, so I make you feel even more unloved, and then we entrench ourselves into our positions and we say, well, I'm not going to forgive you because you did this. And then we have this cycle of dysfunction and it's a habit that we've developed. And it's something that God can give us victory over. So let's keep going here. Talking about these pathways. So while, now here's, here's the amazing thing. And this is, we're going to zero in on this. So while Dr. Eccles was examining this synaptic junction under an electron microscope, he noticed some tiny enlargements on the sending fiber that looked to him like thin miniature buttons. So he called them boot. Boutons. So what he noticed and what we have discovered is that on an axon that sends 
a signal. If that axon has become part of a regular pathway of, of a habit that you do, these nerve cells are basically wired now to just fire automatically. They, they have button-like figures on them called boutons, enlargements, because they fire so much, so they get larger because they need to work more. So you start developing habits, and the nerve cells respond, and they enlarge, and they're ready to just keep working and working and working because that's what they're used to do doing. So there's actually physiologic anatomic changes that happen in the nerve cells of your brain based on choices and habits that you're making. And today we know that these little boutons are found in different shapes and sizes and we know that they also secrete various chemicals based on what's happening. One is acetylcholine and um, this is an excitatory neurotransmitter that causes something to happen, to move forward. That can be good or bad. And brain scientists have discovered that any thought or action that is often repeated is actually building these little boutons on the ends of certain nerve fibers so that it becomes easier to repeat the same thought or action the next time. So the more you do it, the easier it gets to do. So, what's, what's the principle? Frequent thoughts or repeated actions become easier the next time. And I mentioned this earlier about musicians. That's why piano players can't, after much practice, play the keyboard with a minimal thought process. You know, I can't even play hymns. Like, I would have to practice a hymn just to, I can, you know, I can kind of mess around on the piano. I know the notes and I can read music. I'm a horn player, not a piano, so I can play the horn. But piano, disaster. I practice, 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 and I can barely get it. Um, but someone who's been practicing from early days as a pianist, they just open up the hymnal and they play because it's an automatic thing. Frequent thoughts or repeated actions become easier the next time. And just as it's true of hand motions, playing the piano, playing the violin, whatever it may be, the same is true about emotional th thoughts and feelings and other character-related issues. So the more you do something, the easier it becomes. So here's our happy, sad guy again. You know, regarding character formation, if we have a tendency to be optimistic or pessimistic, it becomes easier to stay that way as time goes on because pathways in the brain have developed that facilitate that thought process. And you know the old saying, you can't teach an old dog new tricks. But scripture actually says, no, we can develop a transformed mind. But there are things that we'll have to overcome. Dr. William Sadler, a psychiatrist, uses the illustration that frequent repeated actions create literal neural pathways from the brain, which creates a groove in the similar way that walking on the same pathway on a lawn will wear a path on the ground. I, did men I mentioned that earlier. So the sobering thought then is that every thought, feeling, or act repeated is producing physical and chemical changes in our nerve pathways, either to bless or to curse us, when these changes have been strongly established. 
think of the implications of this fact for our mental or emotional health and our character formation. So, you know, now we're kind of getting into the, the meat of what we're going to talk about here. Our habits that we formed are either blessing us or cursing us. You can have good habits, you can have bad habits. Hopefully you're developing good habits, for example, of having morning devotions with God every day. It just becomes an automatic habit that you're going to wake up and spend time with God first thing you do every day. That's a good habit. But we also have bad habits to contend with. So, you know, this works in our favor when we've developed good habits. It's not so good when we've developed bad habits. But thankfully, um, there's some good news coming here. So let's keep moving. So the good news is if we have taken the time to develop good habits, it makes it easier for us to keep those good habits. You know, it's, it's kind of sad when people have taken the time to develop a good habit and then they stop doing it. So if you have good habits, keep those good habits. The bad news, if we have developed bad habits through the years, it can be difficult to break those habits. And I think, you know, one of the hardest habits to break is people who smoke. Now, what some people don't understand or realize is that Nicotine, which is the addictive property within cigarettes, um, has a very similar biochemical structure to caffeine. So if you go to a good stop smoking program, what do they tell you if they tell you, you if you want to quit smoking, what do you need to do? Quit drinking coffee and, and caffeinated beverages. Because if you don't stop drinking caffeinated beverages, you're not going to stop smoking because the caffeine is causing those same pathways to fire. So, oh, I'm going to, you know, if you're trying to quit smoking, but you're still drinking coffee or caffeinated beverages, you're going to keep smoking because it's firing the same pathways. So, keep that in mind. That's why, and by the way, did you realize that Ellen White in her first health vision received light first on caffeine and then later, years down the road, she was given light about pork? So we're good as Adventists about not eat, eating pork, but what happened to the caffeine? You know, how many of you crave broccoli at 2 a.m.? <laughs> how many of you wake up shaking if you don't have your, your orange juice or cereal? Now maybe if you have low blood sugar, but People, if they don't get their coffee, start shaking and get irritable. That's an addiction. So just think about that. And I'm not trying to be mean. Just, just telling you as a neurologist, it's not good for your brain. Okay. So we're, we're going to see that there is still hope, even if we have bad habits that we need to overcome. Scripture has promised that we can bring every thought to the, in, into captivity to the obedience of Christ. So how is this done? So, so far we have seen that boutons are formed on sending fibers at the synaptic junction when actions are repeated on a habitual basis. So you developed enlarged nerve endings that fire more easily based on repeated actions. What we want to know is whether negative habit pathways that have been developed in the brain can be overcome. What happens in the brain of a long-term smoker who stops smoking or someone who has been addicted to alcohol or drugs? Do these pathways go away? You know, it's interesting. I was listening to um, Fred Harding. He's in the General Conference Health Department, and he was speaking at somewhere fairly recently where he ran into an individual who had not smoked in something like 25 years, something like a long time. And 
he just happened to be somewhere where someone offered him a cigarette, and he thought, hey, why not? And he had smoked for years, but he had been quit for 25 years. Within two days, he was smoking two packs a day because that pathway was still there. Now, he also had the pathway then to stop smoking again and not to do it. That just tells you, though, that these pathways stay there. Generally speaking, these bad pathways stay in the brain. That doesn't mean that they can't be minimized, though. So at present, it appears that only after years of disuse, the pathways that contain these boutons may gradually die, but generally they stay around. It seems that habits form a rather permanent pathway in the brain. Unless a habit is not practiced at all for many years, it is never erased. Habits can be overcome, however, by developing other habits that are stronger than those that a person wishes to overcome. So in other words, you know, just using smoking as the illustration, if you can develop a good habit in place of the smoking, or maybe negative thoughts. It may be eating certain foods. Now let me give you a bit of a personal testimony. Um, about, I guess yeah, it was last December, so I guess it was about nine, ten months ago now, um, I had reached a point in my life where I was two pounds away from being obese based on, a, on the body mass index. And, you know, you can kind of sort of hide it, wear a nice baggy suit or, you know, whatever. But I was definitely not where I needed to be with my weight. And, um, my, you know, I, any normal human being likes to eat. And I was eating healthy food. My wife cooks good, healthy vegan food. But I was eating three large full meals a day, which, you know, Ellen White says most people should eat two meals a day, but some need three. And I figured, hey, I'm that person that needs a third meal. Well, <laughs> maybe 25 years ago when I had a faster metabolism. But um, in the last eight to nine months, I've developed a new habit of not eating a third meal, generally speaking. Every once in a while I do. But, um, you know, it was a bit hard at first, but I'll tell you, as the weight started to come off, it was a motivator to stay on that new pathway. And... Um, the first 10 pounds came off just by cutting the third meal out. Um, and that was, I forget how long that took. But then I hit a plateau, so then I realized I need to add exercise to it, because I wasn't really exercising, and that's not good either. So now I exercise at least three times, hopefully four times a week. And I have a, I have a nice long driveway that's three-tenths of a mile, and it's off kind of secluded. So I have a nice built-in place where I can just exercise. And that got me the next... 10 to 15 pounds. So I've basically lost 25, almost 30 pounds over the last eight to nine months. And I needed to. I mean, that, that was a change that needed to happen. But I needed to develop a new habit pathway. And that started by cutting out the third meal. And, you know, some of you are fine to have a third meal, but a lot of us really don't need that third meal. So for me, at least, I um, have done much better um, in that regard. So that's just a personal testimony.
We can build new pathways in the brain by consciously choosing to make a different response to a given situation than we have been used to making. We must make that conscious choice so many times that we build more boutons on the new pathway than we have on the old one. So in other words, you've had this old pathway, it's not a good pathway, it's a bad habit. Now you just have to keep developing over and over through a conscious choice a different pathway that overcomes the old pathway. Now, a lot of us can do this through self-will, pulling yourself up by the bootstraps for a certain period of time, but really if you want to develop truly good habits, you need the grace of Christ to sustain you to do this because anybody can go on a new game plan for two weeks, but what are you going to be like six months from now? Are you going to be back to just the same old you and, and it's you just back to the same old way? Or by the grace of God, have you let Christ come in to develop a new pathway? So when the new nerve impulses come flowing through the brain, it will be easier to take the new route rather than the old. Now, here's this is getting into some, some of the nuts and bolts here. One key to understanding the development of new habit pathways in the brain is understanding the role between GABA and adenosine versus acetylcholine. GABA and adenosine are inhibitory neurotransmitters. So they're like what you would say stepping on the gas pedal. You're driving down the road and you need to hit the gas. GABA and adenosine are like that in the brain. If you need to say no to something, GABA and adenosine are going to fire and they're going to stop you. So like if you're walking along and, oh, there's a huge cliff, GABA and adenosine fire and they get your legs to stop moving. And that's a good thing. You wouldn't want a brain that didn't have GABA and adenosine and the acetylcholine just keeps firing and then you go over the cliff because you couldn't stop. I mean, you wouldn't want to have a car that had a great accelerator and no brakes. And by the way, when you drink caffeine, it um, causes you to hit the accelerator and not have a good brake. So it works temporarily like, oh, now I feel awake, but then you can't stop so easily, and then, anyway. And then it becomes an addiction. So... Uh, all of these neurotransmitters have their appropriate place because sometimes you need to be decisively yes, sometimes you need to be decisively no. Um, when you decide to not do something, such as avoiding smoking or avoiding losing your temper, GABA and adenosine are fired by the neurons in your brain. I guess I could tell you another personal testimony. When I was 15 years old, I was about to enter my sophomore year of academy. Mark Finley came to our conference camp meeting and up until that point in my life, um, I had had a temper problem. Something goes wrong, I'd throw stuff around the room and yell and scream, whatever. And nothing my parents had tried had really worked. And um, when Mark Finley came, um, I went forward on an appeal. I knew there were things in my life that I needed to, to surrender to the Lord. And by the grace of God, generally speaking, I have not had a temper problem since that, that time. I'm sure, you know, you have moments where you get upset, but, you know, the yelling and screaming and throwing things and just being completely ridiculous. The, the, the Lord, you know, gave me the victory over that. Developing a new pathway where when I was tempted to lose my temper, 
God had given me the victory, and so I would say, no, I'm not going to throw something across the room. God would give me the victory, and when I would say, no, GABA and adenosine are firing in the brain, which keeps me from doing crazy stuff. And that's a good thing. I'm glad the GABA and the adenosine are there to stop that, right? So when you decide to do something, like smoking or losing your temper, then acetylcholine fires instead. And that's bad in that situation, but other times that can be a good thing. We'll talk about that. So butons are formed on the terminals of neurons at the synaptic junction when a decision or action is carried out repeatedly. When we repeatedly decide to avoid losing the temper, butons on nerve sen terminals sensitized to the firing of GABA and adenosine are created that help us to present losing our temper or any other negative action. But then when we repeatedly lose our temper, acetylcholine's firing off and that becomes a habit. Now, if there's been a long habit of losing the temper, smoking or drinking, alcohol where the excitatory neurotransmitter acetylcholine is repeatedly fired, this can be overcome by developing new habit pathways in which GABA and adenosine are repeatedly fired instead. So this is, if you don't remember anything else from the, this presentation, this is the thing to remember. That when you're working on developing a new habit pathway, decisiveness is essential. Saying no very strongly makes GABA and adenosine, other inhibitory neurotransmitters, fired more easily. So let's, let's do an illustration. Let's just say that you're having a smoking problem and you haven't smoked for two days. And then suddenly a good old buddy shows up with a pack right here and he offers one. Now here's, here's, there's three things that could happen here. Number one, you could say, oh yeah, thanks so much. And then you're right back to where you were before. That's certainly not decisive. I guess you could say it was decisive in the wrong way, but we wanna be decisive in the right way. But you could be also kind of wishy-washy, like, oh man, I kind of wish I could, but I'm trying to quit right now, so thank you. That's so thoughtful of you. <laughs> and in your mind, you're thinking, man, I hope he does this again. <laughs> but not this time. Thank you, though. Or you could politely say, no, thank you. I'm never smoking again. Please don't. Please don't offer me any more cigarettes. I'm not doing that. And in your mind, you're not saying this out loud, but in your mind you're saying, no, no, no. When you say it that decisively, the gab and the adenosine are just firing away, and it starts to become easier and easier to say no. But if you're like, uh, nah. Next time it's like, yeah, I'll do it. And you can apply that to any addiction, any sin, whatever it may be. If you're wishy-washy, you know, I heard C.D. Brooks say this one time, sometimes we walk away from sin hoping it will catch up to us. And it will, if that's how you feel about it. But the grace of God can transform your mind so that it becomes easier and easier to say no.
Now, sometimes we need to be decisive in the other way, where you say yes. So for example, oh, I don't like knocking on doors. <laughs> They're just going to slam them in my face anyway. But when you start to be very forcefully positive, I mean, it could be more than just witnessing. It could be a variety of things where decisiveness is very important. Then acetylcholine fires, and it's good that it fires. And then you're able to carry through with an action that needs to take place. So if you don't remember anything else, decisiveness is important in overcoming negative habit patterns. Um, once one is set out to develop new habits, we can sometimes slip. At that moment, it is important to remember that one slip does not destroy the new pathways that are being developed. Learn from the mistake and rely on God's grace to help the next time. So, you know, if you have a little slip on a temper thing, oh, it's all over. I knew I'd never get the victory over this temper. Just forget it. No, 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 no. You're developing new pathways. You had a slip. God's merciful and gracious. He's going to help you to keep moving forward so that eventually it's not going to happen at all. Just man falls seven times, rises up again. The wicked falls into mischief. No, just keep getting up. God will help you. And so we started by saying the Bible promises that we can have new minds. Negative thoughts can be overcome. We see, we've seen some of these pathways. We've seen good news that new positive pathways can be created that can overcome old negative pathways. And I have a few quotes here to wrap up this session. And these are familiar quotes. Many are inquiring, how am I to make the surrender of myself to God? You desire to give yourself to him, but you are weak in moral power, in slavery to doubt and controlled by the habits of your life of sin. Your promises and resolutions are like ropes of sand, you cannot control your thoughts, your impulses, your affections. The knowledge of your broken promises and forfeited pledges weakens your confidence in your own sincerity and causes you to feel that God cannot accept you, but you need not despair. And you know, I think all of us can identify with our promises and resolutions being like ropes of sand or New Year's resolutions, whatever it may be. Ellen White goes on to say, though, what you need to understand is the true force of the will. This is the governing power in the nature of man, the power of decision or of choice. Everything depends on the right action of the will. The power of choice God has given to men, it is theirs to exercise. You cannot change your heart. You cannot of yourself give to God its affections, but you can choose to serve him. You can give him your will. He will then work in you to will and to do of his good pleasure. Thus, your whole nature will be brought under the control of the Spirit of Christ. Your affections will be centered upon him. Your thoughts will be in harmony with him. So here's what happens. You say, I can't do it, God. But you can. And I choose to give you the control of my life. And when you choose to give control of your life to God, he then steps in and takes over. You have to cooperate, so every time a temptation comes up, are you going to choose to let God, or are you going to choose to do it your own way? But then God develops these new pathways, these new habit patterns in your life, so that, that God can help us to develop these new pathways. Now, let's keep going here. And we're 
technically supposed to go to 4.15, but I may end a few minutes early and take a few questions here. Um, and th this is um, also actually from Steps to Christ. Desires for goodness and holiness are right as far as they go, but if you stop here, they will avail nothing. Many will be lost while hoping and desiring to be Christians. They do not come to the point of yielding the will to God. They do not now choose to be Christians. Through the right exercise of the will, an entire change may be made in your life. By yielding up your will to Christ, you ally yourself with the power that is above all principalities and powers. You will have strength from above to hold you steadfast, and thus through constant surrender to God, you will be enabled to live the new life, even the life of faith. I like that. Constant surrender. You will be enabled to live the new life, even the life of faith. And... I'm going to read, I'm just going to skip ahead to my final quote here that I want you to really think about. This is Desire of Ages, page 668. And this is a powerful quote. If you don't remember any other quotes that I've read today, this is the quote to remember. All true obedience comes from the heart. It was heart work with Christ. And if we consent, he will so identify himself with our thoughts and aims, so blend our hearts and minds into conformity to his will, that when obeying him, we shall be but carrying out our own impulses. Amen. Did you see that? That it will become our own impulse to follow the will of God. That's the renewed mind that we can be transformed by the renewing of, of our mind. You don't have to stay like the man of Romans 7. Oh, the good that I would, I don't do that. And the things I don't want to do, that's what I'm doing. Oh, wretched man that I am. That's just the human experience, but it's righteousness by faith. Thank you, God, that you cover me while I keep sinning. And oh, wait, no, that wretched man is the man of Laodicea that Jesus says he's going to spew out of his mouth. You don't have to stay in a life of slavery to sin and bad habits. You don't have to stay in a negative cycle in your relationship with your spouse where you have bad thoughts and feelings towards each other. All of that can change. All true obedience comes from the heart. And if Christ is in your heart, when we consent and we allow him to take over, he will so identify himself with our thoughts and aims. He will so blend our hearts and minds into conformity to his will that when obeying him, we shall be but carrying out not his impulses, our own impulses. That means we will have developed new habit pathways in the brain that are the habit pathways of Christ, which is the mind of Christ. So there's a science to the mind of Christ. When scripture says, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, that is actually biologically and physiologically possible because of what God does in our mind. This isn't something that you're doing, you pull yourself up by the bootstraps to change your brain. You make a choice to serve God. 
you choose to give your sinful heart to him. You let Christ come in. He becomes your righteousness. He gives you his mind. He gives you his heart. And when following him, when obeying him, you're just carrying out your own impulses. So that, I mean, let's just make this practical. I mean, come on, guys. At some point, if you're struggling with pornography, it should reach a point where you see that as hateful. Like, oh, man, I can't watch it tonight. Uh, That'd be bad. It'd probably keep me out of heaven, so I guess I shouldn't watch it. No, 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 no. When Christ comes into your heart, he's going to give you a hatred for that. And, I mean, women, come on. You you really want to be like Kim Kardashian? Come on. We're headed for the heavenly kingdom. Not for the debauchery and licentiousness of this world. And men and women, we have our own issues. But we both have our issues. And God can give us victory so that when obeying him... We shall be but carrying out our own impulses where we hate that stuff. Where the things that we once loved, we now hate. And we have the mind of Christ. And we're not concerned about reputation because you can have a good reputation and you can be looking at the pornography and admiring Kim Kardashian from afar, but then you can come to church on Sabbath and make it look like you're an upstanding Seventh-day Adventist looking for Jesus to come when your heart is far from that reality. But the truth is that God can so transform us that when we really receive the righteousness of Christ, when we really receive the mind of Christ, he totally changes us from the inside out. And sometimes people will focus on the externals when the heart hasn't been worked on. But the reality is, when your heart changes, the externals will come with that as well. Now, we need to be gracious when we become converted so that we don't start judging everybody who hasn't come as far as we have. We need to have the the love of Christ towards others. But when Christ touches our heart, the heart changes, the thought changes, the thoughts change, and the patterns of our life change as well. Because our focus is on Christ and who he is and what he's doing for us. And I don't know about you, but I think we all want this. We want to reach the point that it can be said of us that when obeying him, we shall be but carrying out our own impulses. That the will of God becomes the natural impulse of our heart. And I understand that naturally speaking, Our tendencies are such that this isn't the case in certain areas of our life. But one of the reasons we come to meetings like Southwest Youth Conference is that we come to meetings like this so that God can convict us, so that our hearts can be pricked, so that the Holy Spirit can say, you know what, that's a habit in your life that needs to change. And God is, his grace is sufficient. He is willing to help us to make these kinds of changes in our life. And by his grace, I believe that all of us here today can go forward from this meeting and allow the Holy Spirit to prompt us about whatever it may be. And we just need to learn to focus on Christ, trust in him, and choose to serve him.
and then he will give us the grace to make the changes that we need. I have, I think, yeah, eight minutes or less to take a few questions on this topic. So if there's any questions, I'd be happy to take a few questions um, before we have our break. And if you feel like you've heard enough, feel free to move to another session or whatever. But um, this is my only health talk. After this, I'm going to move into... So my next session is going to be on... Um, Christ, our high priest in the second advent movement. We're going to focus on that a little bit more. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.